As we come to a major turning point in our study of the book of Romans, I'm reminded of a story that was told at our recent marriage retreat. So for those of you who weren't there, I'd like to share this with you. The story is told of uh, three men whose names are Mark, George, and Robert, who became, over a period of time, very good friends. In fact, so good of friends, they decided to go on vacation together with their wives, and they rented a large mobile home, and they off they went. Unfortunately, just as they got onto the freeway, a large double semi-trailer ran into them broadside, sending them to meet St. Peter at the pearly gates. Mark stepped forward and introduced himself. St. Peter said, well, it's great to meet you. Let me check the book of life, and I'll be right back to you. He came back with a frown on his face, and he said, I'm sorry, I won't be able to let you in. All that you thought about during your life was money, money, money. And in fact, you even waited till you found a woman by the name of Penny to get married. <laughs> the second man, George, stepped forward in the process one again. Peter came back and said, I'm sorry, you can't, we can't let you in. And he said, well, why not? And he said, well, all you thought about during your lifetime was drinking, drinking, drinking. In fact, you didn't even get married till you found a woman by the name of Sherry. Now, the last guy, Robert, standing in the back of the line, leaned over his wife, knowing where he was heading with all of this, and he said to her, she said, quick, Fanny, let's get out of here. <laughs> now, now, I realize some of you may be thinking, what in the world could this have to do with our study through the book of Romans? Well, let me just share with you how I believe it applies. To date, we've learned that according to God's standard of measurement, that all of mankind is declared guilty by God. Regardless of our self-perception of being good, or our perception of being better than others, or even what others may think of us as they see us in our lives, God, as Robert in our story came to realize, knows our hearts. In fact, in our study in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, we're told that there's a day coming where God will even judge the thoughts and the secrets of every man. We've learned an important truth, and that truth is God measures man against God's standard of perfection and not according to our performance against one another. See, man's version, as absurd as it is, would be like taking people who are in prison, and I know having visited people that are there and talking specifically about to one individual who many of you know that I had shared with you that had killed and murdered his father. And even in the course of our conversations, as he looked around at people around him, he felt that according to them, he was better than them. And I can understand from a human perspective what he was talking about. He wasn't a person who throughout his life had been continually a bad person doing bad things. It was a moment in time where he made a wrong decision, and that wrong decision had, you know, had a lifetime consequences. But as he pointed out others who would be walking by us with their chains and shackles on, he'd say, hey, you know, that guy right there, he killed his babysitter. In fact, he brags about it. He said that he watched a movie, and he, he duplicated the crime that was in the movie. He has, like, no regard for what he did. He's just callous. He's heinous. He's, he's just one of those people. And see, it would be like people sitting in prison and, and they compare themselves to one another saying, well, based on what I see about you, I'm a lot better than you. And that other person's looking at him saying, hey, man, but I never killed my dad. See, and so we all understand that if it was based on a comparison basis, we always find someone who is better than us or worse than us, and we hope we fall somewhere in the middle. But what we found, and a very important truth from God's perspective is this, that God doesn't judge man that way. 
He doesn't compare us to one another. He compares us and judges us according to his holy standard, which are the laws that he's given humanity, and those laws reflect his perfect character and his holiness. When God says, thou shalt not lie, he's saying that because in him there's no darkness at all, and God can never lie, he's not like man. So he holds us to a standard, and that's just one example of the many examples that we could give. God compares us or measures us against the backdrop of his standards. And so it's easy to realize and come to the conclusion that God wants us to, and that is that all of us then are guilty. None of us are righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Each one of us have strayed and gone our own way. We've all turned our back on God. We've all sinned. We all fall short. And because of that, the wages of sin or the consequences of sin as the consequences of breaking the law maybe to go to prison, the consequence of breaking God's laws are that we would... The wages of sin is what? Death. Spiritual death separation from God for all of eternity in a place that he had created for the devil and his demons, and that's a place that we know as commonly as hell, it'll ultimately be the lake of fire. A place of weeping and mourning and gnashing of teeth. A place of eternal torment. A place of eternal consequence for the decision that we make or do not make in this lifetime. It is appointed for man to die once, then comes judgment. So how we live this life and the decisions that we make in this life will have eternal ramifications. The wages of sin is death. See, that's the bad news and that's what we've learned today. The good news, and literally it's exactly that. The good news is a, is a word that we call gospel. The gospel or the good news. That's how it translates. Gospel is good news. The bad news is the wages of sin or death will be eternally separated from God because each of us are guilty. The good news is this that we can fall upon the mercy of God and ask for forgiveness. See, the good news or great news of Jesus Christ is the theme of the book of Romans. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, because it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, it's open to everyone, an open invitation, and that is this. Once we recognize that what God says is true, that all of us are guilty, and I'm talking about on an individual basis. This isn't a collective thing. Each of us in our own heart have to recognize before God. The good news is that we can recognize what God says is true. We're guilty. And then we can respond with faith and, and repent from that guilt, which means this, that all of us are walking away from God. We've turned our back on Him. The word repentance means that we would turn our back on the direction that we're going, which is doing that which is wrong before God. We recognize what we're doing is wrong. We turn from that repentances, and now we turn back to God. We throw ourselves upon His mercy, and we respond to what He says we need to respond to, and that's the, the gospel of who? Jesus Christ. The good news of God is this. We're guilty, bad news. Good news is that you can throw yourself upon the mercy of God, and that you can believe what he says about Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God in human flesh, who came to this earth for the purpose of delivering us from the consequence of sin, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That is the great news of the gospel, that we respond by faith and not by works. There's nothing you and I can do that God hasn't already done for us who believe in Jesus Christ. His death on the cross, His resurrection from the dead. If we believe that, the Bible says that that is sufficient for the forgiveness that we're looking for in reconciliation with God. That is a wonderful truth. His death is sufficient. His resurrection is sufficient. The power to give life is sufficient. But it applies only to those who what? Who believe. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, we, we learn that if we confess with our mouth, 
that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we would be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the consequence of sin. Saved from final judgment and the wrath of God in a place called the lake of fire or hell. We would be saved from that ultimate that destiny of all who refuse to believe. We'll be saved if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. We shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. And with his mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Whosoever will call upon the Lord will not be disappointed. See, that's what we've learned to date. And as we go through this, we need to recognize and never forget that God grades humanity on the cross and not on the curve. It is not on a comparison to one another, but it's based upon the cross of Jesus Christ and whether we have believed what God says. We have believed His Word. Now, the first division that we saw in Romans chapter 1 through 8 was that of doctrine that has to do with teaching truth. All scriptures inspired by God, profitable for teaching what? Teaching truth, teaching what God wants man to know. For reproof, for correction, rebuke, and for training in righteousness so that we know how to live subsequent to that. The second division we would call maybe dispensation, which had to do with Romans 9 through 11, having to do specifically with God's dealings with the nation of Israel. Their past election by God, God chose them for no other reason than God chose them, and that was enough. They have currently rejected Jesus Christ as Messiah, and as a result, God has temporarily put them aside so that all of us who are non-Jews can come to faith in Christ and the gospel is open to the world. We learned also in chapter 11 there's a day coming where God will, will, will complete what he had promised them. They will be restored and one day the nation of Israel, those who are alive at the time that Jesus comes back, will look upon him whom they've cursed and they will weep and they will mourn and they will be restored to God. The process is there. It's beautiful. Now we come to this major turning point which is chapters 12 through the end of the book and it has to do with what I would call duty. And that is this. Doctrine always leads to duty. And duty means simply this. What we believe should determine how we behave. Now, you may say you believe one thing, but your behavior indicates you believe something else. So whether you know it, whether you like it, whether you appreciate it, whether you believe anything that I say, how we behave is a reflection of what we truly believe. We can say we believe one thing, but if our lives indicate something else, then what we really believe is exemplified by how we live. That's why they say one picture paints, you know, is worth a thousand words. Because what we see is really what we get. And so in Romans chapter 12, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to take a look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. And it's a wonderful passage of Scripture. There is so much depth to it, I would almost hate to tell you how many pages of notes are before me for these two verses. But don't forget, I've been here for a couple of weeks, so y'all are forewarned. Anytime that I'm gone for a few weeks, you know what this first day like is going to be back. Like, back is going to be like. Or something like that. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Many years ago, when I first became a Christian, I was encouraged to memorize Scripture. And it's so exciting to stand here and realize that here's a passage that, you know, that is one that I've memorized and I've never forgotten. It's amazing how when you memorize things, you actually remember them. But Romans 12, 1 and 2 is, I urge you therefore, brethren by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed, or don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may know what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
having concluded 11 chapters of profound and stirring teaching about what God has given believers, Paul now changes directions and he charges believers with what they need to give to God. You know, in order to understand this, I just want to lay a little foundation for you, and I want to see if you can relate to this, but countless thousands, an observation I've made is countless thousands of people today, including many, many genuine Christians, you know, flock to various churches and seminars and conferences and retreats, all in search of some type of personal benefit, whether it's practical, emotional, spiritual, that somehow we hope to receive by going and doing all of these things. And in so doing, we do exactly the opposite of what we're learning here in Romans chapter 12. And I want you to listen very carefully because the key to a productive and satisfying Christian life is not in getting more, but in giving all. It's not in getting any more from God, but it is giving all we are and have to Him. See, that's what the problem is. That's why so many of us have no joy in our relationship with the Lord. That's why so many of us are running around trying to find the new latest thing that we can take notes and, and somehow they're going, to, they're going to change our life. And to some degree, obviously, the purpose of learning is so that we can begin to apply the things that we learn. And, and so I don't knock that entirely. But what I want to try to get across and emphasize is that when we run around looking for how will this benefit me... We are doing exactly the opposite of what we're going to learn in Romans chapter 12 through the end of our study in the book of Romans. The key to a satisfying and productive life is not, God, what more can you give me? But you know what? Am I giving you everything I am and everything I have? See, Jesus said, true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. John 4, 23. He says, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You know, the Bible is told that we are a, royal, a chosen people, a royal priesthood. That the priesthood of, quote, the new covenant is just as valid from a believer's standpoint as the old one, those of the, Le- the Levitical priesthood or the Aaronic priesthood, and that we are priests. Each person who has come to faith in Christ, we are a royal priesthood. And the the idea conveyed is that we are to offer sacrifices to God. But the difference is we're no longer to offer dead sacrifices to God. We're to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. And that's what we're going to see as we go through this and look in depth. That really, when you get down to it, the whole idea of worship is more than just singing songs. as, As wonderful as that is and as a part of the worship that we are. But worship, from a biblical perspective, not only includes includes the praise of God with our lips and continually giving thanks, which such sacrifices God is well pleased. But we also learn the sacrifices of God are that we would give generously to others, that we'd be available to help other people around us, to give to them. Hebrews 13, 15 says that sacrificial worship includes doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. It's not limited to a worship service where we come to worship God, that may be part of it. But what we need to understand is that's only a small part of it. Because the worship that God looks for is the life that is completely and totally dedicated to Him 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Continually offering up sacrifices to God. And as we see, they're very practical. Above all else, supreme act of worship is to offer ourselves wholly and continually to God as living sacrifices. 
you know, technically, if you stop and think about it, God has already given to all of us who are, quote, believers, everything that we need in Christ. It's a done deal. Ephesians 1.3 says, The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ already has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In Him we have been made complete, speaking of in Christ. Everything pertaining to life and godliness we have through Christ. Technically speaking, we've got everything that God is going to give us in Jesus Christ. Therefore, there's nothing left for Him to give to us but it makes us wonder then why so many of us seem to be missing still something. And that goes back to the greatest commandment. And it still is the greatest commandment. And the greatest commandment is this, that we would love the Lord our God with all of our minds, all of our hearts, all of our soul, all of our strength. That has been and continues to be and always will be the greatest commandment, that we love God with all of our might, all of our soul, all of our heart, all of our strength, with all of our being. And so the question that's, answer, that, that's answered in this is, is one, it's a very simple one, and, and we've got to follow the, the, the line of thinking throughout our study, and that's this. Now that God has given to us everything that we need in Christ, the question is this, how now shall we live as believers in Jesus Christ? That's really the question that's going to be answered in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. How now shall we live? How now shall we live those who have come to faith in Christ? Number one, and we'll go through it very simply, and, and I love this because I'll tell you, what, this, is, this is so powerful to be able to read and to be able to understand the mind and the will of God. Do you know what a wonderful thing is to be able to turn to the Bible and have the, the, the mind of God expressed to us in written form so that we don't have to guess who's God, what's He all about, what's He want, what's He want of my life, what's His plans for me, is, is He even there, is it even a relevant conversation to have with anybody? You know, what a wonderful thing it is that God has chosen to reveal to us through the, express, the expression of a written word. And what we see, and as we go through it here, we find out the first thing is this, the soul has been given to God. The soul has been given to God. And, and what's important about that is, as we go through it, is he says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. The word urge, as we'll see, is a word that has to do with the idea of being called alongside. The word urge is a word that is used also. Jesus translated it or used this word, and it's translated of that of the Holy Spirit. The idea of a helper or encourager or a comforter. He says, I urge for the purpose of coming alongside of us as believers and encouraging us and comforting us. He's saying, hey, this is, this is how we're supposed to live our life. And this is what God wants of our life. And he goes on and he talks about how, you know, basically the, the Holy Spirit of God is our comforter. And he's our comforter in light of the fact that Jesus today sits at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus, when he left, said, I will send a helper or a comforter to you. Think about the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, that He would teach us the things of the Lord. He would teach us about spiritual truth. He knows the mind of God, for only the, God, only the Spirit of God knows the mind of God. And so He reveals the mind of God to us. He's saying, I come alongside you and I urge you. And the important thing is that we understand who He's talking about, and He's talking about specifically brethren. He says, I urge you brethren. Now, the word brethren has to do with a very intimate term, and it has to do with those who have come to a point in their life where they are now, quote, children of God. 
In order to be a brother or sister in Christ, something must precede that. What must precede it is very simple, and it's this. The Bible says, in order to become a child of God, John 1.12 says, for as many as received him, speaking of Jesus Christ, to them God has given us the privilege to be called children of God to those who believe in his name. Name has to do with authority. The authority to do what? The authority to forgive sin. The authority as God has given him, there's no, no name, that he's given him a name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. He has given him a name more highly than any other name. There is no other name under heaven given by which man can be saved, the name of Jesus Christ. And so to become a brethren, I urge you brethren, a group of people that he's talking about, he's talking specifically to those of us who, one, have recognized what God says is true, that we're sinners who fall short of the glory of God. As a result, we're condemned before God. The wrath of God awaits us. We've recognized what he says is true. We've repented from it. We've turned from sin and we've ran back to God. And we've responded with faith to the finished work of Christ. We as individuals have believed what God says. We believe that Jesus Christ died for me personally. And that he rose again and he can offer me not only forgiveness, but eternal life. Every one of us have got to come to a point in our life where we know historically there's a moment in time, a specific moment, where we've made that decision. He believes in our heart. The righteousness that comes with believing in our heart where we're declared just before God. He says, brethren. Now, what's interesting is this. This doesn't apply to anybody else, and I'm going to show you in a minute why that's so true, because it gets very confusing. If you think it applies to you, but you've never in your life recognized what God says is true, that you're a sinner, and responded with faith to the finished work of Christ. If you've never done that, the rest of this is just going to be more confusing to you. So we need to recognize and understand that he's talking about a specific select group of people, and that are those who have come to faith in Christ. Now, the Bible tells us in many places that God first wants us to give what? Ourselves to Him. In fact, the offering that was taken by the, to the, for the churches of Macedonia, the offering was given and it was an offering or sacrifice that was well-pleasing to God because it says they first gave of themselves, then they gave of their gifts. For example, we're talking about giving food for those who are in a motel ministry. Uh, the motel ministry, those who are living in motels. We want to give them food. We want to help them. We want to come alongside and encourage them. But if you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that offering of producing food, producing money, producing gifts, whatever it is, is not pleasing to God because you have nothing to offer God. First, He wants you. Then you can give. Then it will be pleasing to God. And then it's only pleasing to God if the motivation of your heart's right. So we need to recognize and understand that giving things in the name of good things is no more pleasing to God than a person who doesn't do anything because the first thing that he wants, he wants our heart. He wants our soul. He wants ourselves. There is nothing more important than life than the destiny of one's soul. Jesus said, what is a profit a man if he gains the whole world but sacrifices his soul? We see even popular movies today that I saw, the movies that say, hey, you know what, sell your soul to the devil. And you can have anything temporarily, but eternally you're lost to God. We hear that term all the time, sell your soul to the devil. What, what price would, would you give up? Or as Jesus said, what would a man exchange for his soul? There's only two things according to God's word that live forever, and that is what? The word of God and the souls of men. It's the only eternal things that there are. Everything else that we see in this world is temporary. It's passing. It'll all be changed. 
So there's nothing more important in life than what happens to a person's soul. In fact, even the secular world notices the importance of a soul because if you've ever read a manifest or something of that sort where you talk about the number of people that are on a ship or on a plane or whatever, they'll, say, they'll, they'll, they'll use the term the number of souls. The number of souls that went to rest when the, uh, when the Titanic sank. Or an airplane that crashes, the number of souls on board. Why is that? That's because the soul is eternal. And God very clearly teaches that. The soul is eternal. He says, I urge you therefore, brethren. He goes on to talk about the, uh, the idea of therefore. Therefore, you always ask the question, what's it there for? Well, it's there for the reason that everything that we've learned through Romans 1, chapter 11, through chapter 1 through chapter 11, is now what the turning point of the rest of our study is going to be based upon. I urge you therefore, brethren, by what? By the mercies of God. Turn back to Romans chapter 11, and you'll see that this is the end of chapter 11 that now we, we kind of uh, uh, jump on as we head into chapter 12. He says, I urge you, bre- therefore, brethren, go back to chapter 11, it says, and the doxology that's here, it says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable are His ways. What he's saying is, is he shares these mysteries of God, how God has taken Israel and chose them, then has set them aside for the temporary purpose of gathering and drawing all who believe in Christ to himself and, and forming the church. He's saying, man, as I consider this and what he's going to do in the future and how he's going, to re, he's going to reconcile with the nation of Israel and all that God has done, he's saying, man, you know, when I see everything that God's done, how unsearchable are his ways. And really what he's saying is, who am I to question God? Think about how limited we are in knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And it doesn't mean we can't know God because God has chosen to reveal Himself to us. But the point is this, even though God has chosen to reveal Himself, and as I just said, I studied two verses. I got 18 pages of notes. We're on page three. (laughs) Hope you brought a lunch. You know, and you go, there's so much here. It's unsearchable, unfathomable. The word unfathomable has to do with the idea of tracking an animal in the snow and not being able to follow his footprints. It's like, where did he go? What is he doing? He's just so far smarter than me. Even Job, you know, when, when, when God started to just jump all over Job by saying, hey, you know what, you want to question and challenge me? You want to know why I do the things that, that I do? You want to know the direction that I'm leading you in your life? You want me to answer to you? You answer me some questions. And for four chapters, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, he continues to ask Job questions that there's no man that begins to comprehend. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I put the stars in the universe? Where were you when I came up with morning and evening and the sun and the darkness? Where were you when I created the animals? Where were you when I created the seasons? Where, I don't remember coming to consult you. Where were you? Job's final conclusion was, I've heard of you, now I've seen you, I retract, I repent, I fall before you, and I worship you, and I praise you, because you're worthy of it. See, that's exactly the point that he's making here. He's saying, the soul has been given to God. He says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, I urge you, why? Why are we to do the things he's about to tell us to do? Well, because, you know what? God is worthy of us doing what he asks us to do. The mercies of God, his love, his peace... Faith, grace, comfort, power, hope, patience, kindness, glory, honor, righteousness, forgiveness, reconciliation, justification, security, eternal life, freedom, resurrection, sonship, intercession, and the Holy Spirit. All of these things He has given to us. Therefore, He's worthy. 
of us to return to him what he asks us to do. And in a very practical way, what does he ask us to do? He asks that we give our bodies to him. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, because of everything that God has done for you and me, I urge you then to give him back this in return. A very practical thing. The idea of giving back to him our bodies. They must be given to God. See, it's already implied that believers have first given our souls to God through faith in Christ. Now we're specifically called to present our bodies to him as a living and holy sacrifice. You know, if you look at this, again, just look at the simplicity of the words. The first word is the idea of present. He says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present. The idea of presentation is one that has to do with um, that of a priest who comes to present an offering onto the altar. That royal priesthood that we are, according to 1 Peter, that we're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people called for God's own possessions, that we declare the excellencies of Him who've called us from darkness and now brought us into the light. We're to present to Him. The verb implies that it's a one-time presentation, once and for all. And I like that because what it reminds me of is uh, our families, men and women or individuals who come forward and they present themselves to God and to the congregation to dedicate, for example, their child or themselves to following God. The idea of publicly presenting our bodies before God, saying, I present to you once and for all, this moment in time, I present my body body to you. The presentation that has to do with Joseph and Mary, for example, the same word is used of them when they took Jesus to the temple to present him before God, to consecrate him, to set him aside for the work of God. It was something that they did from a human perspective. It's something that wasn't necessary to do from an eternal perspective, but they did it anyway. The idea of presentation, and that is to present what? Our bodies. The whole idea of presenting our bodies, because our souls belong to God, we need to recognize that now the only thing that people can see on the external is our bodies. There's a battle that's taken place, and we've already seen that, between our souls that want to do what's right before God and our bodies that continue to want to do what's wrong before God. In Romans chapter 6, you notice he said, stop presenting yourself. And there's the same word, presentation. Stop presenting your bodies as instruments of unrighteousness but present your bodies to God as an instrument of righteousness to God. He said, stop, and it's implying, stop because you already do this. Stop presenting your bodies or putting yourself in a position where you're going to do what's wrong before God, and now put your bodies in a position where you'll be used by God to do that which is right before God. See, before we trusted Christ, our bodies were used for sinful desires. That's as plain and simple as it gets. Read Ephesians chapter 4, Galatians chapter 5. You know, I'm going down through here going, man, you know what? The only tangible thing, once we've given our souls to God, the only tangible thing that He can use is our, is our bodies. If we're to read the Word of God, we must do it through our eyes. If we're to think about things that we're to do for God, it must be with our mind. If we're to help those around us, we must use our feet to get there and our hands to be able to offer to them the things that they need. God wants to use our bodies for His purpose. I think about the contrast between before coming to faith in Christ and afterwards. The whole idea of using our minds, we're told to use our minds to bring glory to God. Before, I use my mind to what? Scheme evil things. As we come to faith in Christ, he says that, you know what, we're to use our mouth to offer up praises to God. Before, I use my mouth to curse God. We're to use our mouths now to build one another up, to encourage one another. Let no unwholesome word proceed from our mouth, we're told. The word unwholesome has to do with the idea of destruction or garbage. It's just junk. 
Don't let any more junk come out of your mouth. Build one another up. Before I came to faith in Christ, I used my mouth to tear people down, to ridicule them, to criticize them, to, to tear them apart, to destroy them. Now God says, use your mouth to build people up. Use your mouth to bring praise upon your lips to me because I'm worthy of your praise. Before I cursed God, now I praise God. Before I tore people down, now I hope that I begin to build people up. Now hopefully I can tell stories that aren't dirty stories. Coarse jesting, as the Bible calls it, which are just simple dirty jokes and dirty stories. The things that we hear all around us. The things that we hear at job sites. The things that we hear in locker rooms. The things that we hear even in our own families. You know, dirty jokes and dirty stories. God says, don't use your mouth for that anymore. Before that, my, you know, my hands were used for, for stealing or for assaulting or for harming people, for fighting. God says, now use your hands to work hard. Don't steal. Let them, use your hands to work hard. Use your hands to provide for others. Use your hands to embrace people and to love them and to show concern for them, not to hit them and to harm them and to backhand them and to punch them. Use your bodies and, and present yourself. Use your bodies for the what? The service of God and His glory. Before my feet ran to evil. And now the Bible says that my feet, according to the Word of God, are beautiful if I come with the message of God's love and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Behold how beautiful are the feet that bring glad tidings. The Bible says we're to use our feet now to flee from immorality. The Bible says we can use our bodies as instruments of pleasure for our spouses within the, the confines of monogamous sanctity of marriage. Monogamous, heterosexual relationships. We can use our bodies as instruments of pleasure for one another and have the blessings of the God of the universe versus using them for sexually immoral purposes that are not only displeasing to God but also destructive to ourselves. The point is our bodies are visible to the world and should reflect our dedication to Jesus Christ. What people see and how we act and live should be a reflection of what we say we believe. Let me give you an illustration. I was talking to a friend the other day and he said, he goes, you know, when I first became, when I first became a Christian, um, you know, I was struggling with, you know, how I should, the things that I should be doing and the people I should be hanging out with and all the stuff that was going on. And I just decided that, you know, I didn't want to be different than my friends because, you know, this was just a personal thing between me and God. I said, so I would go to parties with them and I would get drunk with them and I'd tell dirty jokes with them and I'd smoke dope with them and I'd do all the same things that I did before I came to faith in Christ. He said, one of my friends came to me and said, hey, man, I just want to tell you, dude. I just want to tell you that, you know, when, when you told, you know, when I heard or you started telling people you became a Christian, we were really worried, you know, we weren't sure we were going to invite you anymore to parties and stuff. He said, but you're, we just want to let you know you're still pretty cool. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, he said, yeah, you're pretty cool because, see, you can go to church and you can go to a Bible study, but you can still come and drink and smoke dope with us. You're still cool. And he said that he could just feel the Spirit of God saying, See, is that who you really are? Is that who you represent? Is that what it means to you to be used by God to bring glory to His name and His kingdom? That you can talk out of both sides of your mouth? Another friend said the same thing. He said, Man, he goes, We used to worry about, you know, Robert coming to your Bible study. 
This is a guy who had since came to faith in Christ. He said, and we used to worry about it, but man, he'd come home from your Bible study on Thursday night, you know, and, and he'd come back with us and we'd have, you know, everybody be in the jacuzzi and, you know, we'd have the women over and we'd just send them, you know, bring some beer on the way home and he'd stop on the way home. And they'd bring us a beer and they'd get in the jacuzzi with us and hey, you know what? As long as that Bible study didn't impact his life, then you know what? Whatever he wanted to do is fine with us. And unfortunately for him, the guys were all sitting around in the jacuzzi, never heard the gospel because they saw the way he lived his life. The man who told me that story had come to faith in Christ and he vowed never to be a hypocrite like Robert was when he came home and sat with him in the jacuzzi and did the things that they did. You see, it's fascinating to me because we're supposed to be a living sacrifice. Living and holy. The word holy so it doesn't frighten us away has the idea of being set aside for God's purposes. To set aside, to live according to a life that's pleasing to God. To be a living and holy sacrifice. You know, there's only two examples throughout all of Scripture of a living sacrifice as far as actual sacrifices. You know who they are? Isaac's one and Jesus is the other. Now, for those of you who may not know the story, God said to Abraham, I want you to offer up or sacrifice your son. I had a guy come to me once and said, Chuck, what kind of God would ask a father to kill his son? And I said, you know, did you read the rest of the story? Or did you stop right there? He's like, well, what do you mean? He didn't read it at all. This was some other idiotic thing that somebody had said to him once, and he thought he'd run with it without ever checking into it. You know, I always love people to do that. It's like, what kind of God would ask his, a father to kill his son? I said, now, did you read the story? They're like, uh, no. He goes, well, you know what? Let, I said, like, let me just tell you the story so you keep walking around like an idiot. I'm <laughs> like, please do. There's something about, you know, that, I, okay, if I say, oh, hey. Well, listen, God asked Abraham to offer up his son. But you know that Isaac, his son, went willingly? Isaac, his son, was an adult, a grown teenager. Abraham was an old man. Abraham didn't drug him, didn't hit him over the head, didn't drag him up there. In fact, Isaac carried the the wood that they would use to start the fire to offer him to God. And the reason Isaac did that was because his sacrifice was acceptable to God because Isaac gave of himself to God. He set aside his own will. He set aside his own plans. He set aside his own future. He said, Lord, your will be done. If this is your will that I'm offered up, then so be it. I'm ready to jump up here on the altar and I'm going to allow this to take place. For the, for the remainder of the story, we need to realize and understand that God didn't require Abraham to kill his son. Abraham, in faith, was going to kill Isaac because he believed, according to Hebrews 11, that God would raise him from the dead. See, because he knew God made him a promise that Isaac would, would, through Isaac, would come a great nation. So God couldn't kill Isaac without fulfilling his promises. So he just went, well, if that's what God decides to do, then he's going to raise him from the dead. And Isaac said the same thing. Hey, look, you know what? If I'm a promise of God, then that's fine. It's all going to work out okay. But God didn't require that. And the reason he didn't require it was because God provided the sacrifice. God provided that sacrifice. And he still does today. God wants nothing from people than their heart, their soul, to be turned to God, to believe in him. Do you realize that it is better, the Bible says, in 1 Samuel, Saul didn't understand this and God rebuked him because of it. 
God rebuked Saul because he had taken captive the, the, the king of the Amalekites and he had taken their good, some of their goods and they weren't supposed to keep anything. They were supposed to destroy everything. And Saul rationalized, God, I'm going to give you a sacrifice. And God, through the prophet, rebuked him and said, the sacrifice of God aren't these things that you're trying to do. The sacrifice of God is obedience. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Every time I read that, I'm reminded of people in our world today who they go to church, they won't miss Mass, they go to synagogue, they do stuff for God, they're always trying to work their way into heaven. And you know what God says to them? I don't want your sacrifices. I've given you a sacrifice. God so loved the world that He gave us His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him and Him alone would not perish but have everlasting life. I don't want your crummy, worthless sacrifices. You think you're sacrificing for me? I don't even recognize that as a sacrifice. Because first, I want you to give of yourself to me. See, King David understood that in his sin with Bathsheba. Adultery and murder. You know what he said? The sacrifices of God are a broken heart. A broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you'll never turn aside. You'll never despise. You know that David never offered a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice for the forgiveness of that sin. He offered God his heart. And he was told the moment he did that, your sins are forgiven. See, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Jesus Christ was a living sacrifice. Though He died on the cross, He rose from the dead. He's alive today. And as a result, He can offer eternal life to those who believe in Him. A living sacrifice. God doesn't want our stuff. God doesn't want us to sacrifice our time, to sacrifice our energy, to sacrifice you know, not eating meat or, or not eating candy or all the stuff that the world does. You know, He doesn't want any of that. He wants our hearts. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. It is a guarantee. It's a promise. The whole idea of being spiritual is one of being logical or reasonable. That's how it translates. The sacrifice of God. He says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is what? Your spiritual service of worship. The, the whole idea of being a spiritual service of worship translates into a logical or a reasonable act based upon what we already know that God has done for us. Isn't that wonderful? See, in, in 1 Corinthians 6, the, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit? Don't you know when you came to faith in Christ that now God, the God of the universe and the, and the person of the Holy Spirit resides within you? then how in the world can you continue to present your bodies as instruments of unrighteousness instead of instruments of righteousness? Isn't it just reasonable and logical based on everything we... In fact, he goes on to say, you've been bought and I've been bought who have come to faith in Christ. We've been bought by a price. What's the price? The precious blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on behalf of those who would believe in Him. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies very practical, relevant way, as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable God, which is our spiritual service of worship. He goes on and he also talks about, and what? Be not conformed, but transformed. The idea of renewing our mind. 
The mind must be given to God. We've given our soul to Him. We've given our bodies to Him. We have to give our minds to Him. The mind must be given to God. And here's what he says. Be not, it says, be not conformed. The idea of being conformed is a passive idea and it has to do with this. Don't let the world we live in squeeze you into its mold. Don't let how the world thinks squeeze you into thinking like them. Do you know that as a believer, the Holy Spirit residing within us teaches us the truth of the things of God. God says, this is truth. The world around us says, no, it's not. God says, this is my, my will. And the world around us says, no, it isn't. And so we got the struggle always going on in our minds of which direction that we're going to go. One direction, I want to do what's right before God. The other direction is, but, but I'm being inundated and bombarded with everything around us that says, you know what, here's the way you need to think. And I was challenged as I was thinking about this whole idea of the world has to do with the whole idea of every thought, every opinion, every philosophy, everything that's going on around us, trying to get us to be squeezed into that way of thinking. And I thought about some things that are prevalent in our world. I'm just going to run through them real quick. I thought about the world that we live in wants to squeeze us into believing evolution rather than creationism. Wants us to believe there is no God. Wants us to believe everything just happened. Wants us to believe everything other than the fact that we have a creator and we're accountable to him. Squeezes us into starting to think that way. So all of a sudden, everywhere we go, we begin to think in those terms instead of in the terms of God as our creator. We live in a world that says all faiths, all gods, all religions are equal. That all roads lead to heaven. And the word of God shouts, no, that's not true. There is only one God. And we're to worship him and to serve him and be obedient to him. That all these other gods that man manufactures are just that, man-made gods. There's only one God. Jesus said, there's only one way to heaven, it's through me, and there's no other way to get there. You can't work your way to heaven. You can't go to church enough. You can't give enough money. You can't do enough things. You have to surrender and sacrifice your heart to God's word when he says, believe in Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he says. There's no man comes unto the Father but through me. We can't have inclusiveness because it is an exclusive teaching that's taught by our Lord himself that we were to enter by the narrow gate for the road to destruction is broad. That's the world we live in. I think about even election things that are going on, a woman's right to choose. I'm just going to tell you right now that a woman does have a right to choose. I believe in a woman's right to choice. And before you all die and have a heart attack, here's what I believe. I believe a woman can choose to have sex or not have sex. I believe a woman can choose to have sex with whoever she wants. That's her choice. That's a freedom to choose. I'm not advocating that because there's consequences with wrong choices. But I believe a woman can also choose to choose to use birth control if she chooses to. But that's as far as those choices go. And when a woman gets pregnant, she now is, she's now limited, as we all are, to the choices that one makes when it comes to our interaction with other human beings. That she doesn't have the choice to get rid of a human life. That is a lie from the pit of hell. And anybody that stands there says, I'm for a woman's right to choose. Hey, so am I. But those choices take place before she gets pregnant. After God puts a life in that person's body, they've got to be careful to understand they're accountable before God, and that's a human being. She then has other choices. She can give that child up for adoption. She can choose to marry the guy who got her pregnant. She can choose to do a lot of other things. But you know what? Killing that child is not an option that God gives. We have the choice for consensual sex. The world says, hey, as long as you love each other, the world says as long as you protect yourself from one another. The world says as long as it's between two individuals. And let me tell you something else that I believe. 
I don't believe that sexual behavior should be something that's touted from, from political candidates of what a person does sexually in their bedroom. That's between them and God. And God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he's going to reap. But I don't want this nation being based upon people that go around saying, well, how many times do you have sex with your spouse? That'll determine whether or not we hire you or not. Whether you're having heterosexual, heterosexual relationships, homosexual relationships, uh, relationships with your own self. I, you know, we don't need to know all of that. And who cares about any of that? I don't need to know it. You don't need to know it. But God's the one who ultimately will judge it. You know, the world says, and just so you know, but God says, hey, you know what? There's only one sexual relationship that's pleasing to God. That's heterosexual relationships within the sanctity of marriage. God says, because there's so much immorality, let each man have his own woman, let each woman have her own man, her own husband, her own wife, and that's, the, that's God's plan for sexual fulfillment in this world. Period. The world around us can tell us anything else, but you know what? It's part of being conformed to this world, thinking like this world. God says, don't think that way. Divorce. God says, I hate it. The world says, eh, this didn't work out. This one didn't, the next one didn't, the other one didn't. No, no, it just didn't work out. God says, I hate it. And I'll tell you why I hate it. Because it destroys human beings whom I love. Drinking and drug use. The world says, be responsible as a drunk. <laughs> I go to sporting events and I see these monster beers. I see people walking around with these giant, you know, one-gallon things. I see other people with straws coming out of their hats and two six-packs on their head. And I see at the bottom of a cup it says, drink responsibly. Who ever drank responsibly? I mean, think about how stupid we're. Be a responsible drunk. And then I hear young people say, hey, you know what? I, my friend's turning 21. I say, and? You're a, you're a believer, right? Yeah. Well, what's the magic about turning 21? I'm going to tell you something about a young man I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, that I'm, I'm really proud of. But he said, hey, you know what? My, my friend, my good friend's turning 21. I say, yeah, what's up? We're all going to Vegas for the weekend. I said, really? What are you going to do there? Well, I can't do anything because I'm not 21 yet. <laughs> Say, really? The guy you're going with is turning 21. Say, what, what's going on? I mean, what are you going to do there? Well, you know, I was born at night, but not last night. Now, if somebody who is a non-Christian is going to Vegas to celebrate turning 21, I got a pretty good understanding of what that means. We're going to drink. We're going to gamble. We're going to do all the things that we haven't been able to do just because being of legal age has held us back. Said, now, you know, if he can drink and he can buy, he can buy and take it back to the room. Now, you know, it's like, stop and think about this for a second. You know, think about all the ramifications of it. A few days went by and I saw him again and he said, I said, um, when are you leaving? I said, oh, I'm not going. Really? And I'll tell you what, I was so proud of hearing that and I'll tell you why. Because as believers, we need to think different. We need to think, what good would come of me going there? We need to think biblically. What does it mean when God says, hey, you know what, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Who you hang out with is what you become. Don't put yourself in a position where all you're going to do is fail. Why would you go there and be with them when you know what they're going to do and you're going to take a high moral ground? Are you crazy? You are going to fail. But he understood that without someone saying, you can't go. See, we, we have to be able to, to cause one another to think, to, to give God our minds. The Bible says, let every thought be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't think like this world. But what? 
be transformed. We're either a conformer or a transformer. We either go with the flow or we stand on high moral grounds. We either have deep-seated convictions or we have none. We either like the world or we are a light to the world. And we don't have a choice because God says you are a light in this world. You've come to faith in Christ. You're the salt of the earth. You're a light of the world. You don't have a choice to be a conformer anymore. You're to be a transformer. The word transformer has to do with transformation. It's a word used, metamorphosis is our English word. It was a word used of Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration where he was transformed and temporarily and partially the disciples saw the glory of God revealed to them. That's what we're to be like. Be not conformed to this world, but transformed. How? By the renewing of our mind. Listen to me. There's only one way that our minds are renewed. God uses the Word of God and the Spirit of God to renew our minds daily. To cause us, Thy Word, God, I've hidden my heart. Why? So I don't sin against you. i got to know your Word so that when people come up with all these philosophies and opinions, I've got solid ground to stand on and go to and say, No, you're wrong. You are wrong. And here's why. Because God has revealed himself to us very clearly. Isn't that a wonderful truth? The renewing of our mind. Why? So that we'll know. Know what? What the will of God is. God's will must be done and not ours. It's a purpose statement. Why are we doing all this? So that we'll know what the will of God is and our will will be given to him. He says so that we may prove. That's what it means. Purpose statement. That we will prove or know what God's will is. And we will prove that it's good and acceptable and perfect. Isn't that wonderful? What he's saying is this. When you and I first give of ourselves to God, trusting in Jesus Christ, then we give our bodies to Him and present them to Him as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is reasonable considering what He's done for us in Christ. He says, and not conform to this world, let it squeeze us in, but we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. We know what God wants. We know how he thinks. We know what is truth. You know what he says? That we will prove then what the will of God is. Listen, that which is good and acceptable. There it is. That's a, a term again that has to do with offering. It's acceptable offering to God. A pleasing offering. An aroma that is pleasing in his sight and in his nostrils. It's an offering that God will not despise. It is good. It's acceptable. And you know what? It's a perfect way to live. Isn't that beautiful? See, first we've got to give him our hearts. For with the heart, man believes, resulting in righteousness. I had a guy in closing say, you know what? He goes, man, you know, I'm, I'm listening to all this stuff and I'm having a really hard time applying it. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? He goes, man, you know, I'm learning all this stuff and then I go to work and he's an athlete. He goes, I go to work and, man, it's so hard to live a Christian life. He goes, I find myself swearing. I find myself, you know, angry. I find myself bitter. He goes, man, I find myself all these things. I can't live like that. I said, yeah, I know you can't live like that because first, you have never given your heart to Christ. You're learning things, you're trying to apply those things, but in, in, the, in the reality that you have never come to faith in Christ, you can't live that life. Only the person who's come to faith in Christ and given him his heart can live a life that's pleasing to God because first we gave of ourselves. Then we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We make right choices. Then we renew our mind by the reading of the Word of God so we're not conformed into thinking like everybody else but transformed supernaturally by the Word of God. And then our offering to God is good. It is acceptable. And it is perfect. That's what God says. The question for you and the question for me is this. Are you a conformer or are you a transformer? Isn't that cool? A conformer or a transformer? There's only two ways to live. 
You're either one or you're the other. I say let us allow God to transform us and to conform us, not to the image of this world, but to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And as we go through Romans 12 through 16, we're going to learn how to live in a very practical, tangible, relevant way so that we can make a difference and we can change the world around us for the glory of Christ. Father, thank you for your word. We just thank you for this time. We just pray that as we learn these things and and hear these things, that we begin to apply them in our life. Even as the young man who decided not to be in a position of compromise and to go with friends who would party and drink and gamble and do the things that they would do, that he would take a stand. And God, I just pray that his friends now will have an opportunity to see the difference in his life so that as he shares Christ with them, that he'll have a foundation to stand on that's not hypocritical. God, I pray the same for all of us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.